Welcome to the first episode of our new podcast series, A Day in the Life of an Internist. My name is Saad Patel. And my name is Ali Harb. We are both fourth-year medical students at Rowan Virtua School of Osteopathic Medicine in southern New Jersey. This podcast was created with the sole intention to provide medical students and residents with a better understanding of the career opportunities that exist within internal medicine. Specifically, we wanted to talk to internists in a variety of different practice settings and those with different administrative roles to gauge a better understanding of what it means to actually be an internist in their current role. This podcast was created through a student initiative in ACP, New Jersey Medical Student Committee, and today we will be diving into a day in the life of an academic hospitalist. All opinions expressed in this episode do not convey the views of any affiliated institutions. With that in mind, let's meet today's guests, Dr. Jay Nyack and Dr. James Prister. As you guys can tell, uh, I'm Jay Prister. Uh, I am currently one of the associate program directors for the internal medicine residency at uh, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in, in New Brunswick at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. I have been in my role probably since, I want to say 2016, 2017. I graduated med school in 2010, did residency at Robert Wood through 2013, and then stayed on as faculty. I've had a couple of different jobs during my career, but basically the overall trajectory of my career has been first couple of years out of residency. I worked as a combination of teaching and non-teaching hospitalists. So some of the time I saw patients on my own. Other times I worked with uh, residents and students. Over the course of a couple of years, I worked as a director or a co-director of a hospitalist program. So it was kind of like the chief resident of the hospitalist. So I would do their schedules and do administrative stuff. And now kind of transition into education and do a lot more of the academia stuff. I've done a couple of other things with my career on the side. I have like some stuff I'm doing tech-wise, like running my own business. I have worked as an expert witness before, which was really interesting work. And I have looked into other side hustles just to branch out a little bit, but my big passion uh, really has always been education, which is why I've been trapped or, I don't know, growing my career at the same institution for the last 10 years. My name is Jay Nyack. I took like a kind of a non-traditional route to medicine. As an undergrad, I did biomedical engineering at Rutgers. After that, I got kind of interested in business and I was actually signed with Goldman Sachs. But that was the same year they were under fire by the SEC for like the subprime mortgage crisis. And then I, I reneged on them. And then I did something totally different. So I went to India for two years to study Indian philosophy and Western philosophy at like a very monastic school. It was called Tatognyan Vidyapit, which means school of philosophy in Sanskrit. And so there for two years, like I slept on the floor, I ate really simple food, learned a lot about Eastern Western philosophy, uh, meditated a lot, got bit by a lot of mosquitoes, <laughs> um, but and had no electronics, no computer, no phone, nothing like that. And while I was there, I became really interested in global health problems. And I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. But then I came back and went to medical school here at Temple. After that, I went to Montefiore for residency. They had a really cool global health program where they have like a month where you do like didactics and then another month of um, going to Uganda with like a, a global health team. And so that was really, really amazing. I learned probably, I always say I learned more in that one month of residency than I did probably in the whole year of residency. 
And then after that, I really wanted to do teaching. I also wanted to do global health. And I was able to find a position at Rutgers that was an all-teaching hospitals position. And so that's how I ended up at Rutgers. So currently, I'm at Rutgers, assistant professor of medicine there, and the vice chair for clinical innovation. After talking about Dr. Prister and Dr. Nayak, I found it quite interesting how many different roles a hospitalist can have. Let's hear from Dr. Prister as he describes the different models that exist for a hospitalist and some of the different options that exist for employment. There's a lot of different models for hospitalist work. The predominant model, I think, both when you look at academics and private is seven on seven off, which I know I'm sure is very familiar to you guys. So I would say the vast majority of hospitalist programs work on this model now. And when you're in a private practice setting, it really is for the most part, really seven on seven off. So yes, you know, you are working 26 weekends a year. So you're not really going to be uh, available at the same time that your friends and family are available. But when you're off, you're, you're pretty off. I mean, it functionally amounts to roughly 26 weeks of vacation. And, uh, this is, this is pretty true. I would say for the private world, though, usually most employers will ask you to participate in some sort of quality improvement stuff, go to meetings on your week off, but it's generally considered pretty mellow work in, in a private hospitalist environment. Uh, that's kind of become the, the standard of practice here. And the, the reason for that is when you're on, your on time is pretty busy. You know, seven on could easily be an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. shifts every day for seven days where you might be doing a whole myriad of things. You might be, you know, in the emergency room admitting the entire day. You might be seeing a boatload of patients at maybe doing a combination of some of those things. And a lot of hospitalists also have responsibilities for, you know, either going to like rapid responses or running codes. So the workflow of the day kind of gets a little unpredictable when you have some of those responsibilities. And, you know, 12 hour shift is, it's a long shift. So, so when you're busy, you're, you're pretty busy. You end up working probably like 84 hours if it's, you know, seven, 12 hour shifts in a row. But on average, you know, that's about a 40 hour work week when you combine it with your week off. Most of the people that do these kind of heavier shifts, I think typically will spend a couple of days at the beginning of their seven off just recovering. So, for a lot of people, it doesn't really feel like a seven off. So that's kind of the private model with academics. Uh, you know, just like anywhere else with academics, you, you take a, some kind of pay cut in order to have an easier, easier work schedule, better work life balance. Uh, typically with academics, your on shifts are not quite as, they're not quite as long. They're not quite as arduous. And when you're off, you're, you are expected to do a little bit more. So it could be something like research or education or working with students or doing quality improvement stuff. But, you know, you're probably going to be physically in the office more. So it's really not, you know, the 26 weeks of vacation that you might really come to expect with private hospitalist work. Some private hospitalist models don't necessarily adhere to a seven on seven off. They are usually more like shift kind of thing. So some hospitals will do like locum slash per diem, which basically means you don't really have a fixed schedule. You kind of commit to working X amount of shifts per month. They may be back to back or they may be staggered. It just sort of depends on the, on the model that, that you're working in. 
And I think that there's really good opportunities and also really bad opportunities in both private and academic settings. So uh, that's why I, when I talk to anyone that's going into this job or anywhere else, I tell them that they have to uh, definitely go and interview minimum of like six or 10 places and talk to their friends that work there so that they can get an idea of what the work environment is like. And both our physicians for today's episode have the unique role of being academic hospitalists. Let's hear a little bit from Dr. Nayak about some of the responsibilities that differ for an academic hospitalist. So my day is probably different than like a non-academic physician or a non-academic hospitalist, or not even if you're an academic hospitalist, but not a teaching hospitalist, it'd probably be very different too. My day starts at around nine um, and I meet with the residents like immediately. I don't do any pre-charting or like looking at the patient list or anything really before I get there. And I like to like bedside round with all the residents because I think bedside medicine is really, really important to learn. And so we just start seeing patients like one after the other. Um, we go inside the room, the residents or and medical students present whatever the patient's history is, an exam and labs and everything right in front of the patient and family. We ask clarifying questions about certain things, talk to the patient, do some exam things, explain to the patient what's going on, and then go to the next patient. And we do a lot of the clinical decision-making in the room. Like we talk about the differentials, we talk about all anything that we need to talk about, we do it right in front of the patient. Um, and I, I find that the patients love it because they feel like you're actually thinking about everything and like they feel involved and engaged. Some of them don't, but mo- most of them, I feel like they do. So we start rounds at nine and we go until like 11 to 1130 usually. And then after 1130, I break off, the residents break off. We, I've already seen all the patients by that point. So like we we saw everybody together. So I don't have anyone else to see again or to do anything with again. So I go back to my office. I usually in the afternoons, I have a couple different things that could be going on. So sometimes it's meetings. Sometimes it's like QI, quality improvement type of meetings. Sometimes it's we have like a committee that evaluates all morbidity and mortality in the hospital. And so I sit on that. So we talk about different things some afternoons for that. In this role where I'm the vice chair of clinical innovation, I have a lot of little initiatives that I'm working on to to innovate in the the inpatient and outpatient setting. And so in the Department of Medicine, so there's lots of little meetings for those things. I run a clinical trial. So that's another thing. So the afternoons are like very, very variable. Like every day is probably very different from like 12 to around 2, 2.30. And then around 2.30, I go back to uh, meet with the residents. And then there's this book that, so this guy, Jerry Passione, who was the person who started the global health program for uh, Montefiore, he wrote a book. It's called Reasoning Without Resources. It's like a really thick book, but it just has cases from Uganda. And then like the clinical decision-making that's involved in those cases, like, and it goes through, there's like questions and like answers. And like, I go through a case often with the residents in the afternoon and the medical students in the afternoon or we talk about a different topic sometimes. And so that's like 2.30 to 3.30. And we talk about, you know, any updates that have happened from the testing that's been done since the morning or anything that's changed since the morning. And then around 3.30, I'm usually done with that. And there's like an hour of time left. So I sometimes, again, I have some meetings in the afternoon, but then that's really it. I sign some notes and then 4.30-ish, I'm pretty much most of the time I'm okay to get out of the hospital around 4.30. If we're on long call, then we might be like the schedule would be very different because we're admitting patients that day. So then we might be going to the ER at around 3.30 or 4. And then, you know, seeing some of the new admissions. And then and then I usually head out. So my day typically as an, a teaching hospital says 9 to 5, 9 to 4.30. I, we also do weekends. Where I work at Rutgers, the weekends hours are better. Um, just to get a feel for like what like the day-to-day looks like. The weekend would be probably 9 to 12. 
or one for me typically, unless we're on call, which will be longer. But as long as we're not on call, it's like a nine to one ish thing. I do do stuff at night. So there's times where I sign notes at night. And now that we have Epic on our phones and are able to like review things on the phone, like I sometimes I flag things that are critical for me. And so I get like alerts saying like when things come back. So I check into those things and like, I'm still like passively involved at the hospital, even after I leave is what I'm trying to say. Ali, one of the interesting things I found during our interviews was how both of our academic hospitalists found similar rewarding aspects to their roles. You know, to me, it's really teaching. I honestly love teaching. I think that's like the most rewarding part of my job. I love taking care of patients. Don't get me wrong. I love like when patients get better. And But something about teaching is just really close to my heart. I mean, I feel like I've had a lot of great teachers and I just appreciate them so much that I I, I strive to be a good teacher. And, that, that, and whenever I feel like I am, I feel really, really um, rewarded by it. I also feel like great patient care also satisfies me a lot. Whenever, you know, we're able to figure something out that someone's been dealing with for a while or difficult situations, navigating those things. Actually, same answer, working with students and residents. I mean, like, I love it. It's great. Knowing myself, I probably would not survive in a private hospitalist setting. I, I just get really bored very easily. So... I think just seeing patients day in and day out, uh, that kind of churn ends up burning a lot of people out. That's why many, many people that go into private hospitals work eventually try to transition out of it and try to do something that's more administrative, more non-clinical. And I don't know, I just have a lot of job satisfaction working with trainees. I guess the, the point is I just wanted to be supervising my own trainees and not somebody else's. Like I can't teach somebody how to do surgery, <laughs> but I, I love working with students and residents as long as we were given the right resources, the right time to do it. For me, it's very refreshing. You know, you guys haven't had the chance to become jaded yet. You know, everything is very novel for you. And and that, I don't know, that that adds like some, it's a, it's a refreshing thing for me because kind of bring me out of the whole like corporate environment of the hospital saying, hey, your patient has been here for too long or your discharges are going in too late in the day. I'm able to, with students or residents, get back to really why I decided to get into this field in the first place is it's really medicine and curiosity. And Sahil, another part about the interviews that I found quite interesting was how both our academic hospitalists were able to explore external areas of interest and projects that were important to them outside their role as a hospital. Let's hear from Dr. Nayak as he describes some of the work that he's done in the medical innovation space. It's a new role. There was, there was no role, no such role before. What I'm responsible for is trying to find innovative sol- solutions to traditional healthcare problems in the hospital and outpatient settings. And the territory is like really, really, I think, hot right now. So like if you, you know, read about stuff like AI and medicine is like really, really big. One of the projects we're working on is a physical therapy software. So like in the hospital, you know, when, when someone gets admitted to the hospital, they decondition over the week or two weeks or whatever time frame they're there, especially elderly patients. Um, a lot of people don't know, but like people over the age of 70, about 30% of them lose an ADL by just being hospitalized. So like every time that they're hospitalized, they lose like the ability to shower on their own or the ability to walk or something, you know? And so it's, it's really significant morbidity, you know, to the patient. I mean, like walking out of the hospital, they're just not the same person, even if they they're better from their COPD or their pneumonia, they're not, they're not who they were before. And so addressing that very difficult. There's a lot of barriers. I mean, there's a lot of things that we try to do in the hospital. For example, we have nurses try to exercise patients every day or walk them every day or get them out of bed into a chair. 
But there's a lot of barriers to that. Nurses are overloaded. They're already seeing so many patients. They have so many other things to do. The patient might be down for a test when the nurse has time. And when the nurse, when the patient's back, the nurse doesn't have time or they're eating or they're tired. You know, there's just so many different things going on. It's very difficult to, to coordinate those things. And then physical therapists are not staffed in the hospital to work with patients every day. They're staffed to do discharge disposition evals, right? So they're looking to see if you need rehab or you don't need rehab. That's like their main question, right? They're not really looking to do therapy with you in the hospital because they're just not staffed that way. It's not a rehab facility. And so, you know, we run into this issue where elderly patients, you know, decondition in the hospital. And this came out of a hackathon. I went to a hackathon and I met this group that was working on physical therapy software in the outpatient setting. What their software does is it, it tracks motion and it can correct motion and correct exercises. And so if a physical therapist in the outpatient setting assigns exercises to a patient, then they can sit in front of any laptop, phone, iPad, anything. And while they're doing the exercise, it gamifies them. Like they see things that they have to grab and they're like kind of scoring points while the software is making sure they do the exercises correctly and correcting them if they do it incorrectly. I thought that was pretty neat. You know, if we could have something in the inpatient setting that would motivate people to like do in-bed exercises, maybe we can reduce the amount of patients that decondition. And so we worked with that company to develop an inpatient like specific product geared towards elderly adults. That's like basically a screen, like a computer monitor on a pole that goes in, like can sit in front of the patient's bed at the foot of the bed without any staff. The patient interacts with the, like there's a camera that watches them and like, you know, they, they move their hand to select exercises they want to do. And it's not exercise, really games. Like they play basketball. So they have motions and they do like lower um, body motions and they're like doing different things that like make them move have some range of motion they do some crunches while they're doing some of this stuff without even knowing it and we're looking to see if elderly patients will do this so if they will if they'll engage with software then maybe we can you know fine-tune this type of software to really help patients get mobilized and so they don't end up in rehab as often i i think a pretty neat fun thing i mean and it's not really hospital medicine like it's not there's no like medicine per se in that, you know, it's like, it's a total, it's a peripheral field, but it's something that comes in the, comes in the innovation space and under the purview of hospitals medicine, because we see these patients all the time that, you know, decondition. So there's a lot of really cool, unique things I think that you can do um, in hospital medicine because it's so broad, like it's not really, you know, one thing. While talking to Dr. Nyack and Dr. Prister, they both explained that sometimes academic hospitalist medicine does have its drawbacks. For Dr. Nayak, a lot of the drawbacks are related to the institutional requirements that come with the job of being an academic hospitalist. While for Dr. Prister, the drawbacks are very different. I've worked at both an academic setting and also a community hospital setting, and they're both challenging but in different ways. Working in an academic center, one of the most frustrating things for me is the fact that I have to work with trainees. Let me give you the caveat. So when I work with my own trainees, so when I work with my own students and residents, we work very closely together. So I make sure that they're well supervised. I make sure that they understand what's going on with their patients. And I really make them the care manager for their patients. But not every hospital system is, or not, not every specialty is set up as well as my specialty is for the purposes of teaching and supervision. And so a lot of times, I mean, I'm just a hospitalist. I'm, I can't do surgery. I can't do many procedures. I'm not an expert in a lot of things. And so I need other doctors to help out with my patients. I think probably by far the most frustrating part of my job in an academic center is wrangling consultants. A lot of it means I have to go through 
usually residents, sometimes students, although generally students, when I work with them, they're much easier to work with. But when I have to work with interns or residents from other services, it can be very frustrating because some of them see their role as kind of just running interference for the attending or saying, why do we need to do this consult? They maybe don't really understand it. Or usual answer I get is, well, let me talk to my attending and I'll get back to you. And then I don't hear back from them for another day or two or ever. A lot of a lot of my job ends up being supervising other services residents to make sure that they're taking care of the patient. And unfortunately, I, I have to do a lot of handholding with fully grown attendings too, because they're not the primary team. And so they're not incentivized really to do anything to move a patient's care forward. So I have to really be the patient's advocate. Seeing this contrast with a community hospital, it's totally different. Unlike salaried employees, salaried residents, and salaried attendings at a medical school, community hospital, the payment models are very much eat what you kill. So they love consults. I I call an attending for a consult and they go back in time and see the consult three days ago and give me the recommendations before I even anticipated them. If anything, sometimes the consultants gone without even me asking them, which is, I think, probably a negative of working at a community hospital, but it's a much smoother system, really because of the incentivization and the reimbursement model. And also, I'm usually the only one that's doing teaching at a community hospital. Most of the subspecialty services, they're run by private attendants. So it's, it's a different environment. I do definitely a lot more when I'm in an academic center, and I really like being sort of the big care manager for my patients. Frustration-wise, it can be really, really challenging to get people the care they need sometimes. You know, calling the surgeon over and over again to say, hey, when we come see the patient, I know you're busy, but I need your help. So that's, that's I think, the, the toughest part of, of this kind of work, of being a sort of primary care team, you know? Lastly, we want to spend some time discussing how students can explore a career path in academic hospitalist medicine. We asked Dr. Prister on his thoughts about this. Honestly, the main thing that you need for academics is a good attitude, nice personality, and the willingness to not be paid a whole lot. <laughs> so that's that's really it. It's I don't think it's difficult to do academics. I can tell you that there are a couple of things that I think can bolster a person's resume. Definitely some kind of teaching experience and enthusiasm in teaching. So if you're a student as a fourth year teaching the third years, building that reputation for yourself in a residency as an intern teaching the students reputation and your connections really goes a long way in terms of getting you to network with different people that are that have a common interest so i think being able to schmooze is obviously like a very helpful thing and your reputation is is super useful in terms of like hard things that you can do that makes your resume look better chief resident year is great it's not just like kind of like a third year resident chief it's like if it's an extra year I did that. Some people do a general internal medicine fellowship. Those are two years long. It will make you more competitive, but it eats up two years of your time. And some people do this without doing any of those things. One of my partners, one of my partners didn't do really either of them. They just, they just had a good reputation, right? And so they got hired into their position because they were clearly very good at their job. They were clearly very mature, a good manager and good at educating others. It's pretty easy to get started with an academic hospitalist job, especially in some of these like more hybrid roles. You know, most, most places don't allot for a hundred percent teaching time. They'll give you like, you know, 30% teaching or 50% teaching. So 
doing something like that out of residency for a couple of years. And then after that, applying for sort of a more purist academic kind of gig is helpful. There's a lot of job opportunities out there. There's always open hires for associate program director positions because there's always new residencies that are being created and new medical schools that are popping up kind of around the United States. So as long as you are flexible in terms of living location, it's doable. Additionally, Dr. Nayak mentioned... Getting involved in a lot of different things is helpful. As a medical student, you probably get opportunities to teach the younger medical students, whether it's an anatomy or something, exciting to see if you like that. But even if you don't like that subject, you can still hone your skills. So you get to hone your teaching ability, your teaching skills. And I think that's really useful. If you have a lot of different experiences, then you have a lot to bring to the table all the time. So especially if your experiences are different than like the classical experiences. So like you bring some new perspective to everything because you have some different experiences, right? Talk to people, get involved, never think that like you can't do anything. Being around people that are outside of medicine, I think sometimes is really helpful to you. Like those, that's what I would say. I say diversity of experience. I mean, I learned the most from my global health experience, I feel. And then also my time in India. I mean, I would say my time in India studying philosophy was probably the most formative experience of my life. And what I learned there was, you know, affects every single thing from my job to my life at home to to everything. All right. So I think at this point, it's a good idea for us to do a little bit of a recap. Some of the things that we learned from Dr. Nank and Dr. Krister. So first, there's a bunch of different ways that people can get involved with academic medicine. Our general understanding is that a hospitalist works seven days on, seven days off. But depending on if you're a private hospitalist versus an academic hospitalist, those seven days off can look pretty different. That one week off involves really being able to explore different initiatives, like that of Dr. Nayak and his work in the innovation space and research as a coordinator. And for Dr. Prister, his week off really is involved with enhancing and delivering resident education. In general, some of the most rewarding aspects of academic medicine involve getting to teach and develop students at various levels of training. And the cons are really just institutional dependent depending on your level of commitment to non-clinical activities. I want to thank everyone for joining us for our first episode of the podcast, A Day in the Life of an Internist. Again, my name is Sal Patel, and today I was joined with Ali Harp, and we're both fourth-year medical students at Rowan School of Osteopathic Medicine. And our goals are really to further develop this podcast so we can highlight a lot of the different career opportunities available in the field of internal medicine. So thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.